you have your copy of God's Word, turn with me to 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, and we'll read verses 10 to 12. I want to give you a sermon entitled, Walking in Harmony. If you ever read uh, Warren Wearsby's little uh, New Testament commentary, you'll, you'll see that's where I got the title from. And um, I put a footnote to myself to remind myself it wasn't my title, because titles are hard to come up with sometimes. And uh, whenever you steal a good one, you might as well give some credit for it, right? Now, the rest of the message is mine, though. I didn't steal Wearsby word for word. <laughs> I just borrowed the title. Now, uh, you know, a couple years ago, I talked to two different churches. They were looking for pastors, uh, one in New England, and uh, actually, there, one was in Connecticut, and then one was, uh, I think, in Minnesota. And both of them had recently fired their pastors because they had found out that their pastors had been uh, plagiarizing all their sermons for a long time. One guy blew me away. He had, he had an MDiv from, uh, from the Southern Baptist Theological Seminary in Louisville. And I thought, man, I can't believe that he would rip off, uh, you know, the sermon. I said, well, who was he ripping off? And they said it was just some obscure person he had found, you know, some books by he was doing. I was like, man, if you're going to rip somebody off, rip off somebody everybody knows. <laughs> right? <laughs> like Wearsby <laughs> or the Spurge. Well, I feel led to close in prayer. <laughs> uh, let's take a reading here. 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verses 10 to 12. This is, this is what the word of the Lord says. Let's start with verse 9. Now concerning brotherly love, you have no need for anyone to write to you, for you yourselves have been taught by God to love one another. For that indeed is what you are doing to all the brothers throughout Macedonia. But we urge you, brothers, do this more and more and aspire to aspire to live quietly and to mind your own affairs and to work with your hands as we instructed you so that you may walk properly before outsiders and be dependent on no one. Now let's make a prayer together. Heavenly Father, I ask for your help to give this sermon. And I feel, I feel incredibly inadequate in this moment. And I pray, Lord, that you cause your word to live in the hearts of these who hear it. I pray these things in Jesus' name, the greatest name I've ever heard. Amen. Now, the apostle here, he is commending the Thessalonian believers for their love for believers. And this is a really a good thing. He says, you guys love each other, and you also love other Christians. Remember, John, Jesus said in John 13, By this shall all men know that you are my disciples, in that you have love one for another. To have love one for another is a hallmark of Christianity. Remember, the Bible, the greatest verse in Scripture, John 3, 16, For God so loved the world that he gave us his only begotten Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. The love of God for us is incredible. And the love that we can have for one another as Christians is also incredible because that love we have for each other as Christians is not based upon merit. Just like God's love for you and I is not based on merit, it is a free and sovereign, gifted love, something bestowed upon us. Remember 1 John chapter 3, verse number 1. Behold what manner of love the Father hath bestowed upon us, that we should be called the sons of God. This outpouring of God's acceptance, this outpouring of God's love is incredible. And you and I as Christians, we should have love one for another. And, and, you, would, and you would think that, well, you know, if we have the Holy Spirit inside of us and God's working in us, that we would have this love for each other and just be automatic and nobody would ever have to urge us to love each other more properly. Well, that's because you're not perfect, are you? Oh, I forgot. You guys are perfect. <laughs> We're not perfect. Our love for each other is imperfect imperfect. And so the apostle, while he says, you guys have big love for all the brothers throughout Macedonia. <coughs> Excuse me. Now I want you to think about this in the terms of, of the church. Now, um, there are two churches in the world, two churches, okay? The first one is the universal church. The church that is, the, the, Schofield calls it the true church. The body of Christ that's composed of all born-again people. That's the true church. And then you have the local churches, which are composed of people who may or may not be born again. Because in every local church, 
In every fellowship like this, you're going to have people who are Christians and who are not Christians. Now, I know that to be true because I myself, I was a Christian. I was a member of Calvary Baptist Church in Flora, Illinois, and my dad was a pastor. I was a member of that church. I was a teenager, and I became a Christian while a member of that church. So in every local church, you have this mixed multitude. If you look at the Old Testament and you see the children of Israel as they leave Egypt and go into the wilderness and finally in their promised land, the Bible refers to them sometimes as a mixed multitude. A group of people, a congregation of people, some of them are God followers, God believers, some of them are idolaters in heart or in practice. So in every local church, you have people who are Christians and who are not Christians. Now in the big church... It's easy to love the big church. It's easy to love the universal church because, well, you don't see them too often. The universal church, nobody who's in that church really ever gets on my nerves or hurts my feelings. I never get tired of seeing them because I never see them. (laughs) But it's in the local church where the Apostle Paul says, you guys have big love for all the brothers in Macedonia, the bigger, broader fellowship. But in the local church at Thessalonica, he says, I urge you, brothers, to love one another more and more in the local church. Because it is within the local church where we have lots of difficulties. It's in the local church where we trespass against one another, as Matthew 18 says. It's in the local church where we annoy one another. It's in the local church where we offend one another. Right? I've been going to church a long time, and I've been a pastor of four churches, and my dad was a pastor, and so I know that in the, within the local church, there's lots of potential for difficulty, lots of potential for pain. How many of you have been through a church split? Put your hand up. Maybe you've been through a church split? Yeah, so not everybody's raising their hands, and so some of you have missed that wonderful blessing. <laughs> they happen. Now, I have a, I have a the, the, the pastor of the, of the church where I was ordained at, he maintains in 35 years of ministry, he's never had a church split. I like to know what his definition is <laughs> of church split. Because I know for a fact that, because I've had family in that church for a long time, that church has had splinters <laughs> through the years. But every church has difficulty, just like every family has difficulty. And we have to be urged to love each other more and more because there are things that hurt our love. And, this, and everything we're going to talk about today is the Apostle Paul telling the church at Thessalonica, these are things that are going to help you walk in harmony. These are things that are going to help you to have better love one for another. Now, I wrote this down to say it, so I want to be sure I say it. Everything and every person in your life that brings you joy can also bring you sorrow and pain. Everything and every person. Now, I've never had, had owned a home with a swimming pool, but sometimes people have swimming pools. They're not really sure if it's a blessing or a curse sometimes because they can, there's a lot of work to have a pool. My brother-in-law, who lived in Florida for about eight or nine years, they had a pool at the back of their house. And when he first moved down there from Arkansas, and then the hurricanes came, he didn't get the memo, hey, Drain your pool before the hurricane comes. I got a new microphone today. I got to keep on messing with it here. And so when the hurricane came, it filled up his pool and flooded his house. And so this thing that brought him a lot of joy through the summer and the winter (laughs) now is causing him a lot of sorrow as the waters flooded to his house. And then you find out that it's not covered by your homeowner's insurance because, you know, it's just neglect on his part, I guess. So everything that brings you joy can bring you sorrow. Now, I've been married for 25 years, so I can say this without any, joy, without any fears, is my wife has brought me lots of joy. She's also brought me lots of joy. <laughs> I've had kids, and they've brought me lots of joy, and they've also brought me lots of joy. I've been fishing now my entire life, and I can tell you that fishing has made me so happy. And it's also made me so incredibly angry. I mean, it's just, but that's the way it is. Your job can make you so happy. Every Friday, right? 
And Monday, <laughs> not quite to say, everything can make you have, bring, bring these things into your life. And so you have to recognize that. Just because something is not making you happy at the moment doesn't mean it's bad for you. And a lot of people say, well, I'm never going to go to church. I'm never going to get involved in church because, you know, the church has made me upset. The church has hurt me. Join the club. It happens to everybody. But that's a normal part of life. Tough times help you appreciate the good times. But the apostle says here, we should, here just to love one another, and so we have to work at it. Now, what I'm going to say to you today is for you, probably, and you need to remember that as you hear the sermon, you need, to, you need to take it as a sermon to you and not a sermon to other people. Because I know when I give this sermon, you're going to think of other people. Boy, she needs that. Oh, how I wish they were here to hear this. Well, they're not. But you are. And so you take it for yourself. And if it applies to you, you know, if the shoe fits, what? Wear it. And if it doesn't fit you right now, put it in your closet because your foot's going to shrink or swell. I got two blue coats. They're identical, but they're not the same size. <laughs> because it, things go up and down, don't they? Right? So if you don't need it today, you're probably going to need it in the future. Or you may have needed it yesterday. So the first thing the apostle says is aspire to live quietly. A quiet life means a life that's lived with as little conflict as possible with the people in your circles of life. Now, basically, we live in three circles or three worlds. We have a family that we live within. We have civil life, which includes our job and the communities that we live in. And then we have a church that we live with and live inside of. And each of the, in each of these worlds, in each of these areas of life, we like to have peace and quiet. It's wonderful to have a peaceful family, to have peace at your job and peace at your church. And it's, it's, like going, it's like dying and going to heaven when you have all three at the same time. Peace at home, peace at work, and peace at church. Isn't that magnificent? All your circles are peaceful. And we should aspire to that. We should work at having this kind of quiet life, a peace-filled life. Now, you can't control the other people in your, in your life. You can't control the people in your family. You can't control the people at your job. You can't control the people at your church, other people. You can try to manipulate people if you want to, but you can't control them. But the only person you can control is you. The only person you can make into a better Christian is you. The only person you can discipline is you. So we, we have to work at making, being the kind of people we need to be. A lot of times when people come to talk to me about marriage, marriage problems, it's the husband comes and he moans about his wife. She's so blah, blah, blah. Or, the, or vice versa. He's so blah, blah, blah. And I tell them, you know, well, neither you or I can make them become what they ought to be, can we? If we don't you wish you could, though? I wish, I wish I could fix everybody's problems. But people don't always want to listen, do they? Of course not. So the only person you can work on is you. You need to focus on taking God's, God's word, and you need to take God's word seriously about being the kind of Christian you ought to be and not worry about what other people are doing. You be the man God wants you to be. You be the woman God wants you to be. And leave other people in God's hands. Let him work on them. Now, you say, well, I don't really like that. Well, I know, I don't like it either. But what's going to happen is you're going to have no choice. Let go and let God, right? You ever heard that little adage? You know, let go of the rope and let God? Well, sometimes God knows you won't let go, so he cuts the rope. There you go. Remember that story in the Old Testament of the children of, the children of Israel as they leave Egypt? And the Bible says, this is fascinating to me, that God leads them into a bad spot where they have a mountain on one side, a mountain on the other side, and the Red Sea in front of them, and Pharaoh and his army is coming to get them. They have no choice. God led them into a blind alley. God led them into a trap. They have nothing to do. There's nothing they can do about it. And God 
tells Moses what to do. And Moses says, stand still and see the salvation of the Lord. And they have to stop. Moses throws up his hands, and an impossible situation, my friends, an impossible situation changes in a second. Not not through human craft, not through human invention, but through the power of God. Because who would ever thought God would part the waters? That's the first time in the Bible you have this story of God parting the waters. But God does the miraculous. God does miracles. God can do what you, God can do more than you believe he can, right? So, with these worlds that we live in, if we're trying to live quietly in these three areas, there will be times when you're going to be tempted to create chaos within the world in which you live. You're going to want to blow it up. <laughs> you ever, uh, have, you ever just, have you ever just had it? You're done. And you just want to hit the nuclear button? Boom. Just blow up the world. Because you're just sick of it. You're sick of them. You're sick of him. You're sick of her. You're sick of everybody. And you say, I'm just done. And you're willing to do and say things that just make it worse. My dad would call it, don't, he'd say, don't pour gas on the fire. Don't make it worse. Don't make it worse. Now, there's an example of this in the Scripture. The reason why we want to do those kind of things, however, is because we're sinful people. Sinful people. Take your Bible, turn to Luke chapter 9, and see an example of this from Scripture. Luke chapter 9, verse number 51. When the days drew near... This is Luke chapter 9, verse 51. When the days drew near for him to be taken up, he set his face to go to Jerusalem. And he sent messengers ahead of him who went and entered, in, entered a village of the Samaritans to make preparations for him. But the people did not receive him because his face was set towards Jerusalem. They didn't, he wasn't going to stay there, and they knew that, so they said, we're not going to fool with Jesus. And when his disciples, James and John, saw it, they said, Lord... Do you want us to pray for them? Lord, should should we advise them that they're making a bad decision? Should we talk to them? No, what do they say? Lord, do you want us to call to, to, do you want us to tell fire to come down from heaven and consume them? <laughs> Isn't that do you want us to do that? We'd be happy to do that. Have you ever felt that way? Oh, I have hundreds of times. Lord, don't you want... I, I, was, I was reading Jeremiah yesterday. And you have Jeremiah, an imprecatory prayer. Now, an imprecatory prayer is a prayer made for the destruction of your enemies. Where Jeremiah prays and says, Lord, let them all be killed. Let them all die. Let them be torn limb from limb. And here, they say, Lord, do you want us to do this? They've rejected you. I mean, they've rejected God. They've rejected Christ. They've rejected the Son of God, the Messiah, their true and rightful King. They've rejected Him. Shouldn't we destroy them? Shouldn't we call down fire upon them? And what does Jesus say to them? Look what He says. But He turned and rebuked them, and they went on to another village. Now, if you have a New American Standard, or if you have the King James Version, the Authorized Version, you'll see that Jesus says, there's a little phrase added, No, because you do not know what spirit you are of. Something else is taking place here. There's another force here, and it's the fallen nature. The fallen nature will lead you sometimes, brothers, to say the meanest, cruelest things to your wife. And the same thing, sisters, to your husbands. That fallen nature, you'll want to stick the knife in deep and twist it. Same thing with parents and their kids and kids and their parents. And you and your brothers and sisters and your fellow church people. Sometimes you'll say, oh, just, you're just sick of it. You take offense. We're tempted to do this because of the fallen nature. The fallen nature wells up within us. And it is, it is a well-said thing that sometimes we have to really literally bite our tongue. Mm. 
because we can make a situation much worse. Much worse. Now take your Bible, turn to Proverbs chapter 20, and let's look at about 200 verses, okay? Listen to Proverbs 20, verse number 3. It is an honor for a man to keep aloof from strife, but every fool will be meddling. Turn the page back one spot to Proverbs 17, verse number 1. Better is a dry morsel with quiet than a house full of feasting with strife. It's better to have very little with quiet, with peace, than a lot with conflict. Look at chapter 18, verse number 2. Proverbs 18, 2. A fool takes no pleasure in understanding, but only in expressing his opinion. <laughs> This gotta get, I gotta get it out there. I gotta say it. Gotta get it out there. Look at verse number 12, same chapter. Before destruction, a man's heart is haughty, but humility comes before honor. Sometimes humility means just keeping your mouth shut and just taking it. It's one of the great lessons my father taught me early on in life. Was the, he said, God will vindicate you in time. And he said, it's the time part that's, that's it's hard, to, hard to deal with because you got to wait. My dad would also say this, the wheels of God's justice grind very slow, but they grind incredibly fine. It really does a good job. You can trust the Lord with it. 1821, death and life are in the power of the tongue, and those who love it will eat its fruit. The tongue is such a powerful thing. Uh, look at, well, we, you could go to 26, 20 through 28, but we won't take the time to read that. And, um, well, maybe we should. Proverbs 26. This is, a, this is such a great reading, really. As charcoal to hot embers and wood to fire, so is a quarrelsome man for kindling strife. You have hot embers and you want to keep the fire going, what do you do? Add wood to it, add charcoal to it, give it new fuel. Quarrelsome people can just keep it going. And my friends, I have to be honest with you, sometimes I find myself to be this very kind of person. Is once I get a good fight going, I want to keep it going and going and going. Because I don't I don't know. It, it has to it has to be a def- defect in my character. Is Sometimes I don't just want to win an argument. I want to destroy my enemy. I don't just want to, I just don't want them to say, hey, yeah, you're right. Oh, no, that's not enough. I want them to eat it. I want to feed it to them again and again and again. Quarrels, we, 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 we can become... When we're angry, we can become such vicious people. Look at verse 20. This summer is going to take forever. The words of a whisperer are like delicious morsels that go down in the inner parts of the, the body. Like the glaze covering an earthen vessel are fervent lips with an evil heart. Whoever hates disguises himself with his lips and harbors deceit in his hearts. When he speaks graciously, believe him not, for there are seven abominations in his heart. Though his hatred be covered with deception, his wickedness will be exposed in the assembly. Whoever digs a pit will fall into it, and a stone will come back on him who starts it rolling. A lying tongue hates his victims, and a flattering mouth works through it. you got to be careful. Your, your mouth can cause so much difficulty in your life, in those circles in which you live. Now, the second thing I want to talk to you about. The Apostle Paul says, he says, aspire to live quietly. Then he says, mind your own affairs. Mind your own affairs. You might, you might, you might say it like this, mind your own business. This means things in which you have a legitimate interest in. Now what happens with us is we tend to get preoccupied with other people's business to the, to, to the neglect of our own business. You ever... I used to work in a factory on a line. Now, in a factory, you have production lines, right? And so I worked, uh, the last factory I worked at uh, was called uh, Amar Garage Door. And the last job I had there was I was a roll former operator. 
And so these big rolls of sheet metal would come in, big rolls of metal, and they would run through a machine that would, it was, a, it was cold, cold forming, roll forming. It would come in flat, and that thing would emboss the garage door. That means put the wood grain on there, right? And then it would, are you guys with me? Big spool of metal, put it on a spindle, and you'd pull it off in a strip like toilet paper. You guys ever seen that? I hope you've all seen that. <laughs> and you feed it into a machine. That machine would squeeze it and put wood grain on it. And then it would come through another machine that was 110 feet long and had rollers on it. And the edges, it would, it would take the edges and roll them up into a garage door. Because your garage doors, you know, they, they sit on top of each other, you know. And they got these little grooves and they, they sync up. And I don't know what any of that stuff is called, but I was the guy that made that. And I ran it through that machine. And if it, if it, yeah, thanks a lot, Larry. Larry really appreciates what I'm talking about. He's like, this sounds like something important. And so that's what I did. And there were three of these things side by side. There was mine. It was EPS-1, EPS-2, and EPS-3. I was on one. I was on one because that's just where I wound up. Then you had EPS-2 and 3. Then right over here, you had, the, you had other machines that, put, that made the garage doors, Right? We put the styles in and the, the rollers and all that stupid stuff. Because nothing was as important as my job. <laughs> and so for my machine, though, I would get that machine set and I would be running it. I had two guys who stacked. These, these skins would come off and they would stack them. I, I'm just running the machine, you know, because I'm, I'm, I'm the lead operator. And, you know, I had to have a chair. <laughs> if they give you a computer screen, they got to give you a chair. I told somebody one time, I said, I can't type standing up. <laughs> so I'm sitting there in my chair. You know, my machine's running good. We're, on, we're in the middle of a big order. And so I'm watching my machine. It's going good. So I look over EPS2 and go, well, how come nothing's spitting out over there? What, what are they doing? What do they think they're doing? I get out of my chair. I stand there and watch them like, we only have 435 minutes of production time, and they're not going to hit their quota. And, I'm, I, and so I'm going to go help them out. I walk over there, you know, walk down to where they're fooling around with the embosser, you know, and they're trying to get it, get it going. And next thing I know, I hear, and my machine is jammed up because I got my nose in somebody else's business. And that's what Paul is saying here. Mind your own affairs. We, we are very easily preoccupied with what other people are doing instead of thinking about our own affairs, our own business. Now, this doesn't mean that we should engage in isolationism because there, there are other people's lives when we're connected with them in a family, in a church, in a community. Our lives are all enmeshed in some areas we do have to think about how those things work together and the impact we have on other people. So he doesn't mean isolationism. He means thoughtful involvement in things which really concern us. Here's what F.F. Bruce said about this. He said, There is a great difference between the Christian duty of putting the interest of others first and the busybody's compulsive itch to put other people right. The busybody who is always getting involved in other people's business. Now, if you stick your nose in somebody else's business, what could happen? Your nose gets bent or busted or broke. You have to be careful about it. You have to think about how much, how much involvement may I have here? Does it really, truly concern me? Busybodies, they just want to get into everybody's business. Adam Clark says this, Paul does not mean that every individual is to mind his own business in such a way that all are to live apart from one another and have no concern for others. But he simply wants to correct the idle triviality which makes men open disturbers of the peace when they ought to lead a quiet life at home. This is that you want to have, aspire to have a quiet life. 
Don't get involved in things that are going to make your world blow up. A.T. Robertson, he lived from 1863 to 1934. He is the most preeminent American Greek scholar. Here's what he said in Robertson's word pictures, his little New Testament commentary. He said this about, uh, well, he seems to have predicted how we stalk through people's social media accounts. Here's what he said. Restless meddlesomeness is here condemned. It is amazing how much wisdom people have about other people's affairs and so little interest in their own. If you find yourself just stalking through people's lives, that's what social media makes available to us. We can, we can see all kinds of things about people. You can learn too much about people. Learn things you wish you didn't know. That's what happens to us. I'll say two things about this. One is if you're going to have social media, you got to be careful because you can overshare, right? And then you can, take, you can be too interested, in, too interested in what other people are doing. Too interested. You know, I like all you guys, right? I like all of you. I like you a lot from 10.30 to noon on Sundays. <laughs> but I like you the most from 1 o'clock <laughs> Sunday until <laughs> Sunday at 10 o'clock. Because there's something about not knowing everything, isn't it? It's nice to not know everything that people are up to. You have to be careful about social media. You can get, inter- you can get too connected with people, too connected. And it causes you to take up things that are not really your affair. Not really your affair. Well, let's read some Proverbs about it. Look at Proverbs chapter 25. Proverbs 25, 17 says this. Let your foot be seldom in your neighbor's house, lest he have his fill of you and hate you. When you see their car pulling the drive, you're like, oh, man. Anybody but him. My dad used to, have, used to buy life insurance from this old man, and he sold this. He was from Mississippi, and it was called Preacher's Mutual Life Insurance. And he would come around every few weeks and collect insurance premiums from my parents. And when I would see his car pulling the driveway, I, I was like, oh, this is going to be a rotten, this is going to be a rotten day. Because he would come and he would stay and he would talk forever. And the worst thing about him was, if you're a Seinfeld viewer, he was a close talker. (laughs) And he suffered from halitosis. So he's in your face with dragon breath. You know, a lot of people don't care about teenagers, and I bless them for it. (laughs) But this guy was always wanting to know what I was up to. How you doing, boy? I'm doing fine. You been fishing? Have you? You like catfish? See right down on my face? You reading your Bible? Because he was selling preacher's life. So you got to be religious. You ever read Schofield? What do you think about his notes? I'm like, I'm 15. I don't care. <laughs> but right in my face, you know, and I, every time I saw, he had big old white Cadillac he pulled in there, I got to where if I saw it, I took off. I don't want to see him. Now, I know, I know that as a pastor, I've experienced this on the other side. Where I'm trying to visit somebody, trying to catch up with them, you know, and you pull in their, <laughs> pull in their driveway. I know they're taking off out the back door because <laughs> they're trying to avoid me. <laughs> Hopefully, it's because I'm not a close talker with halitosis. <laughs> but you, you can wear out your welcome with people. That's what Solomon says. You don't want to do that. Got to be careful. And social media tends to to make that available to us sometimes, I think. Well, back to 25. I closed my Bible. Maybe that was a sign. 25, look at verse 8. What your eyes have seen, do not hastily bring into court. For what will you do in the end when your neighbor puts you to shame? Argue your case with your neighbor himself. Do not reveal another's secret, lest he who hears you brings shame upon you and your ill repute have no end. 
Solomon seems to be saying here is not everything is as it appears to be. So be careful about swearing to it in court. One of my friends, well, he was a friend, he, I was his pastor in Arkansas. He, was, he stopped at Taco Bell, and, uh, and somebody saw him down there having lunch with a very attractive young lady. Young enough to be his daughter. What is up with that guy? Word kind of trickled around about it. And so I, I asked him. I said, yeah, I heard you're at Taco Bell with a woman young to be your daughter. He's like, it was my daughter. A daughter I didn't know. <laughs> a daughter that other, other people didn't know. Because not everything is what it seems, is it? Not everything is as it appears to be. So you've got to be careful about taking everything you see as gospel. This is the truth. There it is in living color. Look at Proverbs 26, 17. This, is, this might be one of the most important verses in Proverbs. Whoever meddles in a quarrel not his own is like one who takes a passing dog by the ears. Now, here's a text that's worth thinking about. What happens if you grab a dog by the ear? Well, you don't know what's going to happen. I had a dog, old Boots was her name, little beagle dog. You could grab her by the tail or by the ear. You could have stuck your finger in her eyeball, and she, and she doesn't care. She was a very laid-back old dog. But there's other dogs, if you touch them, what, what could happen? You grab their ear. You could get bit. You never know what's going to happen with a dog. You never know what's going to happen with a dog. That's why, that's why all dogs should be shot. <laughs> I'm just teasing. I like dogs. Where was I at the other day? Um, I can't remember where it was. Uh, exactly where it was. It was some people. I, I was, where was I at? I went to see some. I was at somebody's house. Or, or maybe it was in my neighborhood. I can't remember exactly where. But this dog comes running up to me. You know, and you reach out your hand. What's this dog going to do? Well, I'll tell you where I was. I was fishing what I was doing. That's what I'm doing most of the time as I was fishing. And these people had this dog, and the dog came running up to me, and I said, hey, Cujo, because that's my, that's my name for all dogs, Cujo, because that reminds me that all dogs could be what? Killers. <laughs> so I said, hey, Cujo, you know, I hold my hand out, and the dog, you know, he smells. You never, you never know, though. I've had dogs run up to me and look friendly and bite me. You never know. So you got to be careful about getting involved in things that are not yours. They're not your quarrels. You never know what's going to happen. Well, let's skip to the third thing. There's more verses to read in Proverbs, but I'm not going to do it. Look at the third thing. The apostle says to people in the church at Thessalonica, says, if you can work, then you should work. And don't disrespect those people who do work. You see it there? I urge you, brothers... To do this more and more, aspire to live quietly, mind your own affairs, and work with your hands as we instructed you. Why does he even have to bring this up working with hands? Well, in the Greek world, in the Roman world, manual labor was something that respectable people did not do. Working with your hands was something that slaves did. And so if you worked with your hands, you were like you're doing slave work. Like when I was a kid, if you washed dishes... As a man, they would say that's, that's woman's work, right? Of course, when you don't have any sisters, guess what your mother makes you do? Woman's work, <laughs> washing dishes. So he says, you guys should work and don't look down on people who work. Now, this is important in that era because in those early churches, you had people who were slaves and free. And they're coming together as one congregation. And the Roman attitude about work was such that if you were a laborer, they'd look down on you. And this can happen in any churches today. But what you see the apostle doing here is saying that in all labor there is value. In all work there is profit. Now, as you think about being a laborer, what kind of job did Jesus have? He was a carpenter, worked with his hands, right? What were 
Peter and James and John? Fishermen. What does our friend Paul do for a living? He's a tent maker. He's a weaver. Cutting heavy cloth. Works with his hands. And the apostle says here, if you can work, you should work. It shouldn't be the aspiration. The Christian's aspiration is not to live a life absent of work. Because work is good. Proverbs 14, 23 says, in all labor there is profit. But his main point here seems to be is that we shouldn't become dependent on other people. If you can work, we should work, and we shouldn't disrespect those people who do work. There's nothing more disgraceful than for an idle good-for-nothing who is of no use to anyone else to say they're a Christian. It's, it's, it's counterintuitive. Christians should be diligent, hard-working people. Of course, hard work is relative, isn't it? Because there's the old adage, work hard, work smarter, not harder, right? Have a lot of kids, do less work. <laughs> there's, there's a, work is good. We shouldn't shun work. We should accept it as good. His main point here is that we shouldn't become dependent on others. Now, he's going to bring this up again in 2 Thessalonians where he's actually going to say that those who don't work should not eat. You shouldn't be begging around. My dad, my dad, he had this, my dad ran a Bible college for 10 years, and he had a student there. And there was another guy in the church who, had, who owned a, a restaurant, a hamburger business. And it was a, dry, a drive-in. And this guy was a preacher, but he never had a job. He never really had any money. He's always begging around for money. And every day about lunchtime, he would go down to this hamburger shop where his fellow church member went, and he would say, hey, you got any, you got any extra hamburgers? You got any food for us? Always mooching, always mooching, always begging. That's, that, that is exactly what Paul is not saying. He's saying what we should not do. We should work. We should labor. Work with your hands, he says. Whatever it takes do it. Don't become a, metro, a, a moocher or a beggar. Now, I'm going to give you a, a key to never having that happen to you, all right? I see never. It's, it's not foolproof. If you work and give offerings to the Lord, you'll find that you'll have fewer and fewer needs as you go along. Because God blesses work and giving. He blesses it. He blesses work and giving. Now, sometimes Christians say, well, I don't like, this sounds like the prosperity gospel, like these people on TV, you know, sow $1,000 into my ministry and, you know, and you'll reap 10000 Well, that's as far as, that's, that, that's, that's not even close to what I'm saying. But the Bible does say, he that soweth sparingly shall reap sparingly. And he that soweth bountifully shall reap bountifully. And the Bible says, if you give a tithe, the Lord will open the windows of heaven and bless you. But if you don't, there's a curse that comes from that. Now, my friends, listen to me. If you belong to God, how much of you belongs to God? All of you. Even your money belongs to God. Everything you got is from God. And God doesn't say, give me 90 and you live on 10. But if that's what he said, you'd probably be okay. Right? He doesn't say that, though. He says, give me a portion. And he makes your portion last. He blesses you. I don't know anybody who's a Christian who's been a regular faithful giver who's mad about it. But I know people who don't regularly faithful give <laughs> who are mad about it anytime it comes up. Giving to the Lord is a blessing. It's a blessing to you. Because where your treasure is, there is your heart. One of the best things about marrying Valerie was when I first got married, I, when I gave, if, if, the, if the offering plate went in front of me and I had a 20, I threw it in. 
unless I needed it. I gave intermittently. And I can remember when we first got married, you know, and <laughs> Sunday comes. Here comes the offering plate. You got your offering. We're just married. We don't have any money. We're flat broken. It ain't no joke. We got to give an offering. We got to tithe. Write a little tithe check. Don't write it for exact amount. You got to give an offering that's above the tithe. (laughs) One dollar offering. (laughs) But when I got married, Valerie said, we we should do this. Ever since, we've been writing checks to the church every, every week or every time we get paid. Writing a check. Now, Valerie manages the money at my house. which is wonderful. And I have no idea if we give <laughs> anymore. But I don't have to worry about it because I know she does it. Sometimes she'll say, how much do we give? And I tell her, she'll say, okay, write it down. We, we give an offering. Now, my friends, since we've been giving to the Lord, I can say, we, we ha- you know, I don't have a Corvette parked in my garage, but it's not because of the Lord. <laughs> But everything we've ever needed, we've had. It's funny how God can bless you and stretch you at the same time. Bless you and stretch you. If I told you how much we gave every month, you know, I'll say this. If we kept the money we gave to the church, I would have a really nice boat. But the only reason why we can give an amount that much is because the Lord has blessed us through the years through giving. And I wish you would all get involved in giving so you could have a blessing. So you could know that God can be trusted. So you know that God can be relied upon. And you've got to start somewhere. I'm not saying, I'm not saying go home and write I, I didn't mean to talk about giving, but you know, while we're here, let's do it, right? I'm not saying go home and write the biggest, fattest check you can. I'm saying go home and, and write a check. Put it in the offering plate. Start somewhere. Now, a tithe is 10%, which is a great number, right? 30% is a great number, right? <laughs> 10 percent's a great place to start. But why don't you start with 5%? Why don't you start with 20 bucks and see if you miss it? Throw it in the offering box week after week. See if you miss it. You won't miss it. I've experienced this so often in my life. You give some, you give some money, and the Lord gives it back to you. It's, it, it's, it's, it happens. It's, it's dumb the way it happens sometimes. Give, and it shall be given unto you. Good measure, shaken together, pressed together shall mean given to your bosom. Give to the Lord. Give to the Lord. Now, if you work... And give, you'll find that God will bless you for those things. Now, what seems to be condemned here is that there are some people who are always trying to get money out of other people, and they make no regular effort to fix their own problems. They're always dependent on other people, always blaming other people. Ecclesiastes 3.13 says, There's nothing better than for a man to work and enjoy the fruits of his labors. It's a blessing to enjoy the fruits of your labors. It's a blessing. Paul encourages the Christians to be workers. Which brings us to the last point. All God's people said, Amen. If you do do what Paul says, if you take his advice, so you may walk properly before outsiders and be dependent on no one. Non-Christians respect respectable behaviors. Because the world that we live in is watching us. They want to see if we're just like everybody else. There are things that even the unbelieving world find distasteful and annoying. And we should take this seriously. We need to be sure that our talk and our walk as Christians are aligned. And and when when we discover that they are out of alignment, we should correct them. doesn't mean that being a Christian is easy. 
But it doesn't mean that, that hard things should be shunned, right? Now you've got to remember 1 Corinthians 15, 33-34. I'm going to read that to you because I think it's worth hearing. And then I'm going to tell you something that might surprise you about it. 1 Corinthians 15, 33-34. Do not be deceived. Bad company ruins good morals. Wake up from your drunken stupor, as is right, and do not go up and not and do not go on sinning. For some have no knowledge of God. I say this to your shame. Paul is talking to Christians here about the behavior of other Christians. Because the church at Corinth was full of Christians who were not behaving as they should. And that bad behavior of other Christians affects other Christians. That's how I know I preached too long right there. <laughs> we've, we've dodged that for weeks. <laughs> other Christians who are not good Christians set bad examples for other Christians. And you have to watch it. Just because brother so-and-so does it and sister so-and-so does it doesn't make it right. I pastored a church in Arkansas, and I had a, had a guy who, we were sitting in a, in a meeting, and the, and, and the guys, they were mad at me, believe it or not. They were, they were, they were quite warm. That's something I had done or said, probably both. <laughs> and I said, well, the Bible says this. And this guy looked at me, and he said, well, brother so-and-so has always said the exact opposite. And I said, big, hairy deal. See, nuclear button, boom. <laughs> Blow up the world, boom. I said, big, hairy deal. He said, well, brother so-and-so, if he was wrong, he loves the Bible. And he, he couldn't be wrong because he's always done it this way and he wouldn't do something wrong. I said, well... Let God be true and every man a liar. We've got to go with what the Bible says, right? You see, that man's standard for what was right and was wrong was not, the, was not God's word. It was some other guy in the church. And now, friends, that still happens. It still happens. It could be happening right here in our church. Hope that it wouldn't, but it could. We have to, we have to follow what God's word says about these things. I urge you, brothers, the apostle says. And I'm so often saying the apostle says, but this is in God's word, so it's God says. So here's, and here's what I'm going to tell you in summary. Aspire to live quietly. Aspire to live peacefully. Avoid conflict with others in the different spheres of your life. Mind your own affairs. Avoid becoming overly involved in other people's business. Encourage diligent work and have respect for those who do work. Avoid laziness and dependency on others. Maintain a respectable and consistent behavior both in words and actions to gain the respect of non-believers. I urge you, brothers, to do these things. Let's pray together. Father, I pray that you help me to live up to this sermon. Help me to be the Christian man that I ought to be. And help these, my friends, to be the Christians they are. Dear Lord, help me to be a good example of Christ-like behavior. And Lord, please help me to line up my walk with my talk. I pray these things in Jesus' holy and precious name.